Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are in awe that we can come before you with confidence. Because of the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, our faithlessness is forgiven. Because of the obedience of Christ Jesus, our rebellion is thwarted. We are overwhelmed at the power of his sacrifice over our shame. Lord, we never tire of dwelling on this great gift of confidence before the creator of the universe. And may we never take for granted, Father, that this confidence comes not as something that we have earned by our own intrinsic goodness, but it is in spite of our faithlessness and rebellion. Father, we confess our need. We confess that we are poor in righteousness. We confess that good is not found in us, but in you alone. Even as we seek to grow in holiness, keep us from ever having false assurance of the source of our holiness, lest we fall short of you. We beg for Christ's righteousness, and we refuse to settle for anything less. And Father, may Christ's righteousness grow in other local churches. We pray for Salem First Baptist and Salem Heights. Lord, in each of their gatherings this morning, we pray that they would be spurred to elevate Christ in every part of their lives. Let all the things of this earth fade and pale in comparison to Christ and his supreme wisdom and excellence. Let Christ be their leader and shepherd and comforter in all things. Lord, we ask the same for ourselves, as we have many in our congregation who have been sick and suffering. We ask for comfort for those who are suffering from loss. Father, comfort them with a comfort that only you can provide and use the rest of us to do that. Fill the loss with an abundance of your love, with riches of grace and mercy, with brothers and sisters of communion in you. For those who are sick, Lord, have mercy on our fragile state and bring healing that we can gather in full and rejoice in your goodness together. We rejoice today with Nolan and Reagan Miller and the birth of their son, Avery. We thank you for blessing them in his birth and pray that their home would be filled with thanksgiving and praise to you and that you would bring glory to yourself and your kingdom through his life. Give Nolan and Reagan wisdom, patience, and sleep as they grow as parents. Lord, our attention now turns to the season of Advent. We ask that our attention would not be like the world's, with an eye to earthly goods, but make us hungry for something greater, an entire kingdom that your son's incarnation inaugurated. We ask that this season would not make us numb to you through the world's distractions, but make us even more sensitive to our great need for Jesus and the marvelous truth that in becoming like us, he could bear our sin, our sin could be forgiven, and we can now stand before you in confidence. We ask that this morning the preaching of your word would cement this truth in our hearts so that we can hold fast to our hope without wavering. We ask all of these things in alignment with the will and in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can all have a seat and open up to Joshua 20. Joshua 20. And actually, our first reading will be from the end of Joshua 21. Well, good morning on this first Sunday of the season of Advent. Uh, 
the week that we focus on hope, if you're following along with Advent at all. And we will see that a great deal uh, in the pictures that are presented to us here in Joshua 20 and 21. Would you read with me this morning to begin from Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise this morning as the covenant God who is true to your promises. You've always been true, and you always will be true. In covenant faithfulness, you have met your people wherever we are at, and you've drawn us into your mercy and grace. We admit to you this morning that we often lose sight of the grandeur and majesty of who you are. You can span the universe with your figurative hand, and yet you are so close to each one of us that your word says that you dwell amongst the body of your son, the church, and you are near to the brokenhearted as we traverse the brokenness of this world. Please help us this morning to remember your presence, that you are here amongst us by your spirit. Help us to view this drafty old warehouse as sacred ground and this time as a sacred moment, not because there is anything special in this physical sense, but because you tell us that when your people gather and your word is read aloud and praise is given, you are with us and in our midst. Thank you for each person you've drawn here this morning in your providence. Thank you for those who are not with us, and we pray that you would be with them. We ask with full understanding of our need that you would teach us now by your word and help us to see that you are in our midst. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Have any of you ever been on a pilgrimage, a journey to a place of reverence or importance? There are both secular and religious pilgrimages. Some are fun, like a pilgrimage to a football stadium or a baseball stadium. Some are challenging, like the hiking trail of the Camino de Santiago, which supposedly retraces the steps of James as church tradition says he evangelized Spain. But other pilgrimages are viewed as a religious means to pursue closeness with God. When Kelly and I went to Israel years ago, we encountered many people who were doing the same thing in a Catholic context. They were trying to grow closer with God through a pilgrimage. Many felt that the actual process of traveling and performing certain rituals would draw them closer to God. And it was an interesting experience to watch people do things that had zero biblical backing to this idea. We watched people douse themselves in holy water, taken from the Jordan River, which is hilarious because the Jordan River is what supplied the water to our hotel rooms, including the toilet water, right? We saw people do new swim strokes. I'd heard of the backstroke. I've heard of the butterfly. What I didn't know is that if you are a nun, in a certain order, you could swim through the river, pop up, and cross yourselves really quick, and then go back down. It was a new, new stroke, I didn't know. 
Now, all these things were somewhat hilarious to us. We watched people kiss buildings and crawl through streets on their knees while saying the rosary. And Kelly and I were so thankful for our trip to Israel and the surrounding countries, but for us, it was simply a fun vacation to a place we'd never been before, and it was educational. It was a chance to see with our own eyes many of the places that the Bible discusses. But it was in no way, shape, or form for us a pilgrimage, as it was for so many others. As we watched these zealous devotees, our tour group would discuss how odd these things were for a couple of reasons. First, as I said, there is zero biblical backing to these ideas. But second, we wondered, if this pilgrimage was required to get us closer to God, what happens to all those people who can't afford to make the pilgrimage in the first place? Is God out of reach for them? It would seem that the people with the least income end up being the ones who cannot participate. If pilgrimages were required in order to earn God's grace, they would be left out of at least a portion of God's grace because it's just too expensive to make the trip. And full reconciliation to God then becomes a thing that only the 1% can attain. And so it should make us wonder, why would a good and just God design a system of worship this way? Well, our text this morning gives us the good news that he wouldn't, and he didn't. In Joshua 20 and 21, we will see that the one true God is far more gracious and merciful and just than this idea. Reconciling with him is not a matter of performing a pilgrimage to a far-off land, for he is not a God who is aloof and waiting for mankind to come to him on our own power and religious effort. If that were the case, we would be all lost in our sin, dead eternally. And maybe only the zealous and wealthy, if anyone could make it, only they could. No, what our text will tell us is yet one more part of the story that evidences God's zealous effort and God's faithfulness to save his people, to defeat the enemy of the kingdom of darkness, and then to take up residence among his people, because he is not a God who is far off, but he's a God who's near. He is a God who is near and ready to be known and ready to reconcile with his people. In the cosmic story of redemption, the calling, assembling, and rescuing of the Jewish people was the D-Day invasion, if you will, of the kingdom of darkness that had overwhelmed God's creation. And as they wandered in the wilderness after making their covenant with God in Mount Sinai, God wandered with them. In fact, his tangible glory sat in the tent of meeting at the core of their camp, never too far from his people. But now, in Joshua, his people have been given the land of Canaan as their own, as a gift of inheritance. And the people will be spreading a bit farther afield than before, making their intimacy with the tangible presence of God a bit stretched. And not only that, they're now becoming a fully functioning society, stable in one place. And they needed more administration and legal structure to be able to handle the problems that would surely be coming. And so God, in his grace and mercy, established a system whereby his people were never too far from God's presence, so that the Israelites could say, God's mercy and grace is among us. God's mercy and grace is among us. And that's what I've entitled the sermon this morning, God's mercy and grace is among us. And what good news that is, amen? That we don't serve a God who's far off, that is waiting for us to do the perfect religious traditions, but he's a God who yearns to be with his people, and he places his mercy and grace among us. In our text today, we will see the merciful work of God to scatter amongst his people two things. 
First, cities of refuge, to which sinners might flee to be saved from the just judgment that they deserved and which they could be pointed to God's mercy. And second, we will see Levitical cities, where the Levites would minister to God's people, teach them about God's law, and point them to the need of the sacrificial system. And we will also see that this is the forerunner, or preview, of what God has done within the new covenant to scatter his people and local churches as beacons of God's mercy and grace throughout all creation. It is with this final act of apportioning the inheritance of the people of God, uh, uh, people of God that fulfills the promises to Israel that God had made and that completes God's faithfulness. And so we'll look at the implications of that truth for us as New Testament saints and believers as well. So let's go ahead and dive right into the text this morning and see, first of all, God's mercy available for the sinner. God's mercy available for the sinner. Would you read with me in Joshua 20? Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the Tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Now, to best understand what is happening here, we have to work really hard mentally to put ourselves back in the historical and cultural context of the moment. We have to understand that this was a time where governments were tribal, possibly feudal, and that there were landowners and slaves and monarchies. There was no such thing as law enforcement. Law enforcement was left in the hands of village elders, and corruption ran rampant, especially in pagan villages, because the level of commonly accepted morality was much lower. Now, our spoiled current-day society has no idea of the blessing they are under because of the Judeo-Christian morality and the order that it brings. We just are born into it, and so we think it's normal, but it absolutely is not. And our society and the law enforcement that we have is based upon the Bible, and that is why it works. Now, much of the world today, and surely the world then, sits in a place of lawlessness and anarchy. That's why places like uh, IJM exist, in order to bring Judeo-Christian values and morality and justice into places where it doesn't exist. And so when someone was killed in that culture, the remaining family members would desire and pursue vengeance for the death. And often that revenge would far exceed the original crime. It's kind of like the mob movies where I'll take not only one of you, but I'll take your whole family kind of deal. 
right? And so the law codes started to then restrict that as they started to come up, codes like the Code of Hammurabi or the Law of Moses. They restricted this vengeance to retributive justice where the punishment fit the crime, an eye for an eye, if you will. But the God of Abraham was different. And he threw in another possibility, the possibility of mercy, forgiveness, and restoration based on conviction, confession, and atonement. Now, these ideas, while common in our Judeo-Christian-based society, were basically non-existent prior to the God of Israel. God provided this law code and system because he wanted to provide everything that they needed in order to keep the land free from unholiness and pollution from bloodshed. Now, this is the idea that we see right away in Numbers 35, 33 through 34. Speaking of the cities of refuge, he says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You see, the land that God had given was polluted by unjust shedding of blood. Now, this is powerful. You can read this whole chapter in Numbers 35 to get more background on the cities of refuge. But it's powerful because it clears up for us the critique that the world has toward the warfare we have seen in the first portion of Joshua. The secular world says the God of the Bible is bloodthirsty and vengeful, biased and capricious. But when we contrast what we see here regarding the cities of refuge with the commands to wipe out the Canaanites and leave no one standing, we have to realize that both of these were from the same God and for the same reason, to bring about the justice and holiness of God reflected in the actions of man. In one case, he said, wipe out the sin by taking care of the people who refuse to repent. In the other hand, he said, have justice for the one who desires to repent. You see, when sin is present in God's domain, God requires it to be summarily removed. But the same holiness that requires cleansing of the land similarly requires a way among God's people of justice and restoration when bloodshed happens accidentally or without meditation. And so God is not bloodthirsty, vengeful, biased, and capricious. The God of Abraham is holy and just, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and patient. Amen? And so... We see in multiple places, they're up on the screen, Exodus 21, Numbers 35, and Deuteronomy 19, we see that God promised his people that when they were in the land, he would appoint a place of refuge. In Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19 especially, we are given more detail of what these cities were to be and how they were to operate. In the law of Moses, when someone committed premeditated murder, they were to be put to death. The sentence would be carried out by a relative of the deceased who had been designated as the Avenger of Blood. That was his title. And one could still be reconciled to God through Levitical sacrifice, but the earthly consequence was for the murderer to be executed. But in the case of manslaughter, where someone was killed but it was accidental or done in momentary passion or self-defense rather than premeditation, God provided a different option. Now, our law code today, in 2022, gets this weird phrase of manslaughter. Sounds really ominous, doesn't it? Manslaughter from this very law. 
speaking of the manslayer. That's how tightly connected our law code in the United States is to Judeo-Christian values. And this manslayer still had the opportunity for receiving mercy and potentially restoration, reconciliation, and full forgiveness. But to do so, he would have to confess the act to the elders of the city. He would have to flee to one of these cities of refuge. He would have to fall at the mercy of the city elders and submit to a trial to decide his guilt or his innocence. The elders of the city would then conduct an investigation, and if the death of the person was found to be done without premeditation or was accidental, then they would provide a home as refuge within that Levitical city. If they found it was premeditated, though, they would hand the manslayer over to the kinsman redeemer, who was the avenger of blood, and he would execute the punishment. If he or she did not flee to a city of refuge or fled from the city of refuge before the death of the high priest and was caught by the avenger of blood, the manslayer would be executed for their crime, and it would be completely just. Through this system, justice and holiness would have a chance of being maintained in the land. Now, just a side note about this person known as the avenger of blood. In Hebrew, this word for avenger is also the word for redeemer. It is ga'al, or you may have heard it mispronounced as goel, ga'al. The background for this role can be found in Leviticus 27. But the most well-known use of it is in the book of Ruth, where Boaz is noted as the Gaal, the kinsman redeemer. There, he is able to redeem and restore Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to their rightful place based on their Israelite husband's lineage of inheritance. And so this person within the family that was a kind of family leader who was designated as the Gaal, depending on the situation, they would either be the redeemer or the avenger of blood. Now this was the detail surrounding this passage here in Joshua. And now that the inheritance has been allotted, it makes great sense that this is completed as well. For it was through this system that the baseline of order and justice would occur in the land, and therefore holiness and purity would be somewhat maintained. But before we move on, let's pause for a second and think about this setup from a perspective of how perfectly it displays God's just and merciful nature. First, the background is that God is the giver of life, and his law clearly states his view on the sanctity of human life. His law is clear that the one who willingly takes a life should suffer the same consequence of having their life taken away. This has been the foundation of Judeo-Christian legal thought since the time of Moses and has only changed in our supposedly enlightened contemporary culture. Friends, the word is clear that Christians who submit to God's law are for capital punishment and against abortion for this reason. These are not political issues. This church needs to understand that. They are biblical issues because God is the giver of life and hates injustice. Therefore, his people are for capital punishment and against abortion. You may think they're political, but they're biblical. God is the giver of life and hates injustice. Secondly, this was way ahead of its time and that there was to be a trial made up of the elders of the city of refuge. This idea of trial and just investigation was likewise so odd for this time and culture. 
But what a reflection of the ultimate judge who knows and sees all things, even the heart of man. Third, the system made room for the nuance of error or accident. It wasn't rigid. And for those who slayed someone without premeditation, there still needed to be consequences, or else that would undermine God's view on the sanctity of life. But they would not need to suffer the fullness of execution. And so the city of refuge idea is where we get our idea of imprisonment. The wrongdoer was to be removed from society to suffer a consequence for their actions, but with the possibility of reform and eventual forgiveness. This was far ahead of its time. Fourth, this system was just because God made these cities of refuge available throughout the land and equally measured where they would land so all of Israel had an equal possibility of utilizing them. Now in our day, where equal opportunity is such a huge topic, we understand that this was drastically ahead of its time. There were to be three of these cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west, also that everyone, including the sojourner that was among the people of Israel, could have equal access. It's amazing how just God is, isn't it? Look at Deuteronomy. Whoops. Deuteronomy 19.3. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. And fifth and lastly, this reform of the manslayer could then happen because, as we will see in a moment, all six of these cities of refuge were cities given to the Levites, where the Levites were to teach the people about the law of God and point them to the need for confession and sacrificial offering in order to be restored and redeemed. This was reform, being pointed to the God who can forgive and who calls us to holiness. And it used to be the model for many of the prisons, uh, prisons in the prison system in the Western world. But again, as this system has been slowly secularized, the government primarily runs it and now has removed this idea of reform through God's word. It's very sad. Now, these cities were a perfect image of God's just judgment. But we also see a picture of God's mercy in this structure of the cities of refuge. You see, once a manslayer was given a place to live in the city, he would need to stay there, living, but within a level of confinement until the death of the high priest. Now remember that the high priest was the primary mediator for all of Israel. He was the head of the priestly guild that performed the sin offering for the people whenever they needed sacrifice to cleanse them for, from their guilt. But once this high priest died, the manslayer was seen as forgiven and restored to his former position and given back his land. He was reconciled back to his old community so he could return in innocence, forgiven. And all of Israel, including the avenger of blood, had to respect that verdict. Now, why this is the case is not laid out in Scripture. It just simply is. And we're just told that for some reason, this high priest's death, being the head of the sacrificial system, provided atonement for the sin of the manslayer. Their sin required someone to die, but the high priest, in essence, died as a substitute so that the wrongdoer could have atonement and be redeemed. Now, hopefully you are already starting to see the connections to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the New Testament message of Jesus' role as redeemer, avenger, and substitutionary atonement. For this system, as beautiful, just, and merciful as it was, even as ahead of its time as it was, 
it was still imperfect and incomplete. Now, even this system would be abused by mankind, and the rest of the Old Testament tells us, even in the next book of Judges, that vengeance and injustice reigned in the land. And there was need for a system of justice that perfectly dealt out justice and mercy. You see, it was incomplete, just like our system of justice today. While good, is still incomplete and makes mistakes. But for that to happen, for the perfect system of justice to come, there would need to be a perfect judge and a perfect redeemer. There would need to be a more perfect refuge. And so mankind needed its own kinsman redeemer, its own Gaal, one who was of our extended human family. And he needed the ability to act in the role of both redeemer and avenger. In our violence against God through our sin of prideful rebellion, we committed a crime graver than any murder. And we repeat that crime whenever our old man is given room to reign in our lives and rebel against God. And so Christ, one day, will come again to act as the righteous judge and the avenger of the blood that mankind has shed because of our pride and greed. But in mercy, praise God, Christ first came as the Redeemer, shedding his own blood to make amends and restitution for our crime. Christ acted as the great high priest, even as we heard earlier in our reading from Hebrews, giving his own life in our stead. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he brought forth the perfect redemption and achieved perfect atonement between his people and God the Father. And because of this, he has mercifully called us to take refuge in him. And he has provided for us a city, the new Jerusalem of his church, in which we take part through our membership in the local church. And the good news is that this city of refuge is both the one to which we have fled and the one in which we have returned home. The old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, speaks well of the saints of the Lord as those who for refuge to Jesus have fled. If you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, who died for the sins you have committed, and you do not know him as the Lord who reigns over your life, then please hear me. There are only two options that you have. One is to submit your life to Christ, And allow him to redeem you from your sin as your kinsman redeemer. The other is to wait for him to come to you as the avenger of blood. Who will execute the wrath of a just and holy God. So don't wait any longer to lay down your life before him and repent of your sins in obedience to him. If you want to know more about following Christ, please come talk with one of the pastors after the service. Or continue coming to this church And we would love to walk with you in discipleship to Jesus Christ. You see, in these cities of refuge, we see that God's mercy was available for the sinner. And it pictures the fact that in Christ, God's mercy is available for you and I. We see a perfect picture of the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next we see in the Levitical cities, God's grace available for the people. Not only God's mercy available for the sinner, but God's grace available for the people. 
Let's read from Joshua 21, verses 1 through 8, and the last couple verses uh, of this section, 41 through 42. 21, 1 through 8, and 41 through 42. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eliezer, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin 13 cities. The rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan, 13 cities. The Merorites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. And then we move forward to verse 41, the section in between, laying out those specific cities in detail. Verse 41, it says, The cities of the Levites, in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel, were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. And these cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Now, in Numbers 35, directly prior to the section describing the cities of refuge in detail, there is a description of God's instruction on the 48 Levitical cities that Israel was to give to the people of the tribe of Levi. There they would live, and from these cities they would minister and go to serve in the tabernacle and eventually the temple of God. Six of these 48 cities were to be the cities of refuge, as we noted here in Joshua. And each of these cities is noted here in Joshua in verses 9 through 42. In Numbers 35, verses 7 through 8, we are told that the number of Levites accorded to each tribe would be dependent upon the population of that tribe so that they were dispersed evenly. Notice what it says. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many. From the smaller tribes you shall take few. Each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites, once again seeing the just nature of God. The cities themselves were evenly spread out, not to the same exact nature of the cities of refuge, but still spread and scattered throughout all of the land, so that every one of God's covenant people and all the sojourners in the land, and even the remaining Canaanites still to be conquered, had equal access to the Levitical cities. And this was very important because it would be the primary job of these communities to be the place from which the word of God and the law of God was preached and taught. They would be places where judgments were made for the people if the village elders could not settle it. They would take it to the Levites to help settle the matter. And from these cities, the Levites themselves would also be provided for. They would have a living. They would also prepare for their duties of sacrifice and worship in one singular tabernacle or temple of God. It was because of these Levites that the sacrifices at the tabernacle were made and atonement for the sins of the people could happen. So you can see how these cities of Levites spread throughout the land became beacons of God's holiness, truth, and hope throughout the land. The tribe of Levi was made up of three branches. We just read their names, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merorites. Each of these were core clans within the tribe of Levi. 
And within the Kohathites was the family of Aaron, and from his lineage would come the line of high priests who would serve with, but at the head, of the other Levites. Now remember that the inheritance of the Levites was very different from that of the other tribes. We saw this in Joshua 13, verses 14 and 33. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings of fire, uh, by fire to the Lord, God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he said to him. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So we saw that their inheritance was in serving the Lord, being near to the Lord in his temple, and practically in the offerings given by fire on the altar. That's how they survived. They ate those offerings, or the remainder that wasn't burnt up by fire. But they still needed a place to live. It's kind of like how some people ask me all the time, so what do you do other than Sunday mornings, as if... I just kind of magically come up here and talk, right? I think sometimes people think I might even live here at the church, right? And sometimes they might be right, but that's not the case, right? We all need a place to live. So did the Levites. So their land allotment is also very different from the allotment given to the other tribes. The other tribes were clustered together in these large masses of land, but the Levites were spread out in small cities scattered among the other people. Now, this had great significance. In being scattered like this, they reminded the people who they were. These communities of priests and their families would pointedly speak and teach God's word. And their lifestyle and work would speak of worshiping God's temple. But their presence in these cities, these cities that they technically did not own or inheritance, showed that they did not possess them. They were merely travelers passing through, for it was the Lord God who gave it to them. And this was an ongoing reminder to the larger Israelite group of people that their land, their provision, it was not their own. They were merely traveling through. It had been given to them by their Lord God, and they would only be fruitful inasmuch as they gave him the glory and the honor. Other people groups in the pagan world, would say that they owned their land, but not so with Israel. Their land was always the Lord's. But by his grace, he had given them a place in his land. And to remember this would keep them humble and realize that while they had earthly provision and possessions, truly, they were no different than the Levites, and that ultimately the Lord was their inheritance." And for those that would get too caught up in their daily life of tending their land and thinking that the gift given was the point, rather than the giver of the gift, the Levitical cities would be a reminder of the need for sacrifice at the temple of God. Reformer Johann Meyer noted that these cities became the backbone of their society. He said this, No kingdom or country can prosper and stand unless the worship of God be in it maintained. How true that still is in our own land and how sad it is that we are finding it out because of the omission of the worship of God in our country as we see the slow but sure deterioration of the impact of the local church on civic life. Where the church becomes anemic, there is a sure but slow slip of the society in which it dwells into chaos and injustice. But we are encouraged by Scripture that the lineage and hope of these cities is maintained even today. It's maintained in the New Testament people of God. But amazingly, it's not in the lineage of the Levitical priesthood. 
but in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. For Christ himself became our great high priest, who ministered in his life, death, and resurrection to make perfect atonement with the Father possible now and forever. And he still ministers in this place as the one true mediator between God and man at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But Jesus was clear to his disciples that his incarnate human form, in that form, it was limited in terms of time and space. And so to accomplish his purposes... Throughout the entire creation, he poured out the Holy Spirit into his people, and we became a priesthood of believers, each individually scattered throughout creation to perform the same duties as the Levites in their cities. He calls us salt and light, and in so doing, he showed his intention to scatter us. In John 14, 12, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. He told his disciples that he would accomplish greater works than even what was seen of him in his three years of public ministry. How? Because he would scatter us and we would cover more ground, literally. To accomplish these works, he would deputize all of us by his Spirit to be priests of one another, and among the non-believers that surround us. And amazingly enough, like the Levites, we would do this in our daily lives. You see, the Levites didn't wear their Birkenstocks and togas and float around and just magically have food. They had to work. They had to entertain. They had to hang out with people. They had to live. They had to sleep. Just like we do. And yet, they still had a role. To not get tied so heavily into those things, those material things, that they missed out on their entire purpose. And we were deputized to do the same thing, to be scattered throughout the land, to point to the one true temple and the one true sacrifice. The Apostle Peter echoes this sentiment in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Notice why we were chosen. That you, not just a pastor, not just a preacher, you, all of us, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like the Levites, we are to remind those around us that this land is not our home. Our possessions are not our own. Christ is the only eternal inheritance. We are to minister on others' behalf as we offer up the incense of prayer. And as each of us preach the word of God through our lives of obedience, and when we are given a chance, the proclamation of God's truth. And we can only do this because the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, dwells amongst us in his grace by his spirit. Through each of us, by our evangelistic efforts and obedient lives, Christ has placed miniature outposts, miniature Levitical cities among a lost and dying world. And we can make God's grace available to the people as we point them to his sacrifice and the fact that he alone is the ultimate touch point between heaven and earth. You see, the only pilgrimage that we need is to fall at the feet of him alone amidst his people. And this pilgrimage is available for anyone. Brothers and sisters, how beautifully does this picture play out to an even greater degree when we consider that not only has God scattered us individually, but he has gathered us together in local assemblies, 
local communities of Jesus followers and Jesus priests to live amongst a lost and dying world. Here in Burkina Faso, throughout Europe and Asia and South America, we are scattered like Levitical cities, cities of refuge. And what is our job? Well, like the Levitical cities, it's teaching God's law, preaching his grace and mercy, providing judgment for sin, providing a refuge for the repentant and confessional sinner, and acting through communion to give a remembrance of the true temple and sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We then prepare ourselves on these Sunday mornings, and as we do Bible studies and other events, we prepare ourselves to go out as that salt and light in individual evangelism to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and so many others. The theme of this first week of Advent is hope, and it is through the people of God that that hope of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the world. And the local church is the New Testament fulfillment of the incarnational picture of God's mercy and grace among the nations. It is our duty and our role, and it should be our honor to show his justice and his grace and act as sub-mediators as we point to the one true mediator. And we do all of this in our city and the surrounding pasture lands which he has given us to tend, just like the Levites. For those of you who do not know Christ, I want to call you to realize that you have the very Spirit of God sitting before you in the midst of these people here in this room. They are evidence of his ability to change lives. And you have his words here proclaimed to you. And you will have the evidence of his sacrifice in our reminder of communion and his death on the cross and resurrection. And so if you don't know Christ, I want to ask you, will you accept his invitation to be welcomed into his family today. Again, please come talk to us. For those of us that do know Christ, this was the imagery that the author of Hebrews used to call the church to fulfill its role as the holy priesthood that has been given access to the tabernacle of God in Jesus Christ. Let's read it again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, we have a duty and a responsibility to be the local church. It is very uh, trendy over the last few decades to say, what good is the church just gathering in buildings? Why don't you go out and do something? Do justice. The same could be said to the Levites in the cities of refuge. What good are you gathering together, you Levites? What good were they? They were beacons of hope that pointed the world to the one true answer, the one who was truly just, the one who was truly merciful. We do the same. And so we, 
need to recognize that we have a duty and a responsibility to be the local church, participate in the local church, and be equipped to be sent out to spread the good news. Christ has paved a way for God and man to once again be one in relationship. The church acts as the incarnational picture of his grace among the nations. Friends, do you understand your role in Christ in this way? Does your participation in the church fall in line with the philosophy and message pictured in these Levitical cities and cities of refuge? Do you view yourself as a priest among other priests, evidencing God's grace and showing that it's available to the people? Do you know that you are to preach and evangelize, not just the pastor? If not, Perhaps you need to reflect on why you even go to church on Sunday in the first place. Is it a pilgrimage that's going to get you into heaven? Or is it meant to equip you for the role you've been given, in a sense, as a Levite? Perhaps you need to reflect on how you see the role of the local church and the members within it, so that your passion for the church and its witness can be set ablaze again. In the local church, just as with the Levitical cities, we see that God's mercy and grace is among the people. God's grace is available to them, and God's great faithfulness is present. And that's what we see lastly in our text today in Joshua. With these last details tied up in a nice little bow, the author makes clear that these communities dwelling in the midst of their inheritance are evidence of God's faithfulness fulfilled. Evidence of God's faithfulness fulfilled. Would you look with me at verses 43 through 45? Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Throughout the Torah, and especially in Numbers and Deuteronomy, God made promises to Israel as they were to walk forward in obedience and look here at what was fulfilled. Because of God's grace, they had taken all the land. They saw rest on every side. Their enemies were destroyed, and all God's promises had been fulfilled, and all came to pass. In other words, everything that God said he would do at this point in Joshua is done. Friends, there is no need for a millennial kingdom where Israel gets their land back because they, it was accomplished here. Why would God say all came to pass if we're still waiting for the land to be given to Israel? All came to pass, yet it was accomplished here. And so we're here we've come to the conclusion of this second major section of Joshua. The first section was the conquering of the land by the empowerment of God. The second is the allotment of the land by the grace of God. We have the choice to gloss over these last 10 chapters with callousness and boredom because it seems like a big, boring list of place names. And I will admit, I have done that in the past. But the reality is that if we see it as it is, it will overwhelm us with joy and gratitude and hope. For in this section, we have seen the complete fidelity of God to his promises. Now, there's a podcast by Nine Marks called Bible Talk, and this week they released an episode on this section this whole section of the place names, and they entitled it this, The Big Boring List of Place Names That You Should Read With Tears in Your Eyes. We should have tears in our eyes because not only does it speak very clearly of the faithfulness of our God to his promises that have come to pass, 
but it gives us assurance of God's faithfulness to his promises still to come. It gives us hope. And from this point in the story of Israel, we realize that God had reinvaded earth in a powerful way. And Israel had now become a second garden of Eden. It was a place, a beachhead, from which the conquering of the whole planet was to come. But just like the present church age, it was a garden that was here, but not yet. For the fullness was still to come in the Messiah. And we now await that fullness to overwhelm and envelop all creation at the second coming of Christ. We have been given proof and a guarantee that it will come to pass in the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. But we still wait for the fullness of the conquering of creation. For Israel, the story of Joshua was the story of God's faithfulness fulfilled. That is the theme of this entire book. For the first audience of this book, though, as they heard it, they wondered what had happened and why God had revoked their privileged inheritance. But the reality was that what they had was merely a picture. Just like each of us and each of our local churches, with the Spirit dwelling in us, we are not the perfection, but we are a picture of what is to come. For one day, God will again prove his faithfulness to his people, but this time it will be in a completed fashion that will never disappear. And so we gather in anticipation of that day, recognizing that in the here and now, we have a role to play and a message to proclaim that God's mercy and grace is among us. And we invite everyone we can in, not to hear the preacher, not to just get connected, but to hear the proclamation that God's mercy and grace is among us and to show them that God's mercy and grace is among us. And we remember on this first Sunday of Advent that hope, the hope that we have in Christ is at his coming return. So let us now, as a church, profess this truth together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so let's together now stand and profess the creed of our faith through the Apostles' Creed. Let's speak it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are not a God who is far off, otherwise we would be lost. We could never find our way to you. But you sent the very incarnate way, truth, and life. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for coming to us. We are just that needy that you needed to come and rescue us. You needed to pull us out of the muck and the mire 
that we had gladly dug into deeply. And so we pray, Lord God, just in thanksgiving. After this week where we gathered to thank you for the provision that you give us and the families that you give us and the friends that you give us, we come to you now and thank you for the greatest gift of all, that you have saved us from ourselves, that you have saved us and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and from sin, death, and hell. And so as we now sing and as we take of communion, we want to proclaim the truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that through you alone come mercy and grace for those of us who have committed bloodshed by the very prideful sin that we have committed in our lives and through the lineage of our first father, Adam, and the original sin that he brought into the world. And so we pray, Lord, that this time now would proclaim to those in this room, but even more so to the outside world and to the principalities and powers of the air that are against you, that you are king, that you reign over your people, and that we long for our king above all kings, Jesus, to return and rule and reign in our lives. And so now, Lord, we give this time to you, and we pray that by your spirit, you would light ablaze your church to give you worship. In Jesus' name, amen.